Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly, because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, and thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. Now skipping to verse 18. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the one who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the one who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the one who hears the word and understands it. They produce a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Again, we're told that Jesus steps out of this private home and stands on the shore. And as so, as so often happens, he draws a crowd. It's so big that in order to address this crowd, he gets into a boat and anchored just offshore, he creates a little buffer between himself and the thronging masses. And then he tells this parable. Now, Jesus gets a range of responses from crowds. And miracles always, they always score. People eat it up. I mean, who isn't down for witnessing somebody defy the laws of nature? Can't get enough of that. There are also times when the crowds are won over by his uh, preaching and teaching. When he's finished, it's as they marvel at the authority with which he speaks. He opens up the scriptures to them in ways no one else ever has. Sometimes. There are other times when, after he speaks, people wander off confused, uh, even a little angry. What he's saying sounds like crazy talk to them. Well, in this case, we're not told exactly how the crowd reacts to his teaching. What we are told in the verses we skipped is that Jesus tells this parable and then returns to the house with the disciples. However, upon returning to the house, the disciples ask a question. And I think this question offers a clue as to how the crowds had responded to the parable. They say, why do you talk to the people in parables? I suspect you've heard questions like this. I've heard questions like this, particularly from my daughters. They come like this. Why are you wearing that shirt? Now, in the case of the disciples, uh, there's likely some 
genuine curiosity behind that question. They probably assume that Jesus has an answer and they'd like to hear it. But as with the question regarding my choice of shirt, there is some implied judgment. There are better shirts. There are better ways of speaking to a crowd. Now, I tend to lack a good explanation and can, for my shirt and can only offer an apology. You know, I, I should know better than to go out before without consulting my daughters. But Jesus does have an answer. And it seems that he is as aware of how well that little parable went over as the disciples are. He's aware that the crowds aren't just sort of awed by what he had to say. He says, well, you know, it's by design. Uh, they're not supposed to get it. Parables reveal the dullness of people's hearts, he says. They, they, lack, maybe they lack the desire or the capacity to get it. But, Jesus says to the disciples, blessed are you. Truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. So it sounds almost as if Jesus is assuming, yeah, those crowds don't get it, but you, you guys get it. You know, uh, as though, oh yeah, yeah, we, we, we know. Scattering seed, right? Seeds and rocks, seeds and weeds, bird seed, good soil. Yeah, say no more, Jesus. We got it. I don't think that's so. Jesus also knows they don't get it. Right? Because the next thing that Jesus does is then say, he says, hear then the parable of the sower. So he's going to interpret it for them. In other words, what distinguishes these disciples from the crowds is not that they're smarter than the crowds. Uh, that's not what it means for them to have ears and able to hear. Uh, they don't have some mystical insight that the others lack. The difference is, they stick with Jesus. They're in the house. If it's going to make sense, they need to stick with him. So let, let's look at, at this parable. And the first thing to note about the parable is it tells a story of someone who's not your typical farmer. You, you don't sow seed like this, just flinging it willy-nilly here, there, everywhere. Seed is too valuable for that. You know, as I was reflecting on uh, this text, a phrase came to mind out of nowhere. And I was thinking, like, where, where did that phrase come from? Where, have I, where did I hear that? And I couldn't remember. So I took the phrase, I put it into Google, and I found a 13-year-old blog post by the theologian Roger Olson. I thought, oh. Maybe, maybe I heard. No, Roger Olson was quoting a sermon, a sermon he had heard by Bill Svelmo, a friend of mine uh, who teaches history at St. Mary's. And it was from his sermon. I don't... Anyway, so it, but here's what, what the phrase, where, where, where the phrase comes from, at least. Bill talks about researching the archives of this uh, missionary uh, society. A hundred years ago, they were, the board was having a debate as to whether the Gospels and the tracts that they published, whether they should be given away for free. 
or whether they should charge for it. And he said, he's reading this discussion, and one board member said that while he had reservations about charging for the gospel, he opposed wasteful scatteration. That's the phrase, wasteful scatteration. Now, Bill himself grew up in the Philippines, the son of missionaries. He grew up fearing God's wrath the way he feared his father's temper. And it was a God who very much opposed wasteful scatteration. A God who is stingy with grace and love and forgiveness. Indeed, things like grace, love, and forgiveness only underscored how much we truly deserved punishment. How ungrateful we are for all that Jesus did in order that we might obtain grace, love, and forgiveness. Now, Bill eventually learned to read the scriptures free from the baggage of his upbringing and to discover all the ways in which God was, in fact, not at all opposed to wasteful scatteration of grace. All the ways God loved abundantly and extravagantly, the most outcast and undeserving. And while he doesn't refer to our passage specifically, it certainly applies. This is a story of God's wasteful scatteration of seed, grace flung far and wide. And so that's one point to be taken from this passage. God is not stingy. But obviously, there's more to the story. A second point would be this. There is a lot that works against the seed being able to take root. Birds, rocks, thorns. Now, we could talk about what the rocks symbolize versus what the birds and versus what the thorns. But the point is that the forces working against the kingdom taking root are plentiful, and varied. And I think we can all attest to this. There is so much inside us. There is so much in the world around us. There is so much that we do. There is so much that's done to us that makes growth in grace difficult. In fact, it raises the question, who is being represented by this soil? Who are these people that are so receptive that they produce 100 times, 60 times, 30 times what was planted? Now, I used to think that this parable was, the point of this parable was for us to find ways to rid ourselves of rocks and weeds and to avoid birds. Uh, and that Jesus is just telling us to be soil, good soil. But is such a life even possible? Can we really hope that at some point we're just going to be free from all that? You know, since moving into our new home, Jen has really invested a lot of time and energy into gardening and landscaping. As a result, she and through her eye have learned a good deal about soil. Some really basic things about soil. And the fact that I didn't know these basic things about soil speaks to the fact that I am a product of an industrial age. 
because the industrial age has encouraged suburban kids like me to think very little of soil, to think of soil as just some sort of consumer good, something you purchase by the bagful and supplement with other products, sprays and fertilizers. But that sort of thinking does not create healthy soil. It creates drug-addicted soil. You know, Monsanto and whatever corporations there are, I mean, in many ways, they are kind of like the mob. They've rigged the system to ensure we keep paying up or the soil dies. Because good soil needs nothing from Monsanto. Here's what good soil needs. It needs minerals, needs microbes, organic matter, air, and water. And nature has its own way of providing these things. Where do minerals come from? Rocks. Second, where does organic matter come from? Well, organic matter is stuff that used to be alive, but is now dead and decomposing, such as plants and animals. So rocks, plants, such as thorns, and animals, such as birds, help create soil. So this parable, it seems to me, highlights the way rocks, thorns, and birds can keep seed from growing. But good soil is not free of those things. Such things are essential to soil. Those things are what enable a seed to produce 100 times, 60 times, 30 times what was sown. You know, I think many of us have been encouraged to have a sort of Monsanto approach to a spiritual life. We are looking for some sort of treatment, some sort of herbicide that will kill everything that interferes with the growth we want. But the, the weeds sprout up again and again. The rocks don't budge. The birds keep pecking away. So in a sense, if we are going to hear what this passage has to say, what we have to do is do what the disciples did. They stick with Jesus. And if we look at Jesus' life, Jesus' life was not free of rocks, thorns, and birds. In fact, his earthly ministry culminates in an infestation, thorns growing up around him, piercing his hands and feet and pinning him to a cross. Vultures circling overhead swoop down and pluck his spirit from his body. And a large stone, a rock, is rolled in front of his tomb. But that, that is all just soil. All that creates the ingredients from which the seed sprouts new life. It is the beginning of the eternal harvest. You know, Jesus does not offer us pesticides and herbicides. The life of faith is not a trouble-free life. It's a life of crosses and resurrections. It is a life in which we are invited to see both the good and the bad, the joys and the trials as compost, as mulch. In the moments, in the moment, these troubles threaten to undo our faith, to keep life from taking root, 
but we stick with Jesus. We trust that in and through him, all that will break down and become compost. You know, when Paul writes to the church in Philippi, he says this, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings. I mean, that's what he's saying, that his suffering and his success are meaningful only in that they become compost, only in that they have an ability to bring a Christ story into his life so that his, Christ's life is being enacted in his own life. I mean, we don't ask for trouble. Suffering is never something we celebrate. Thorns are thorny, rocks are hard, birds are for the birds. When we're in the midst of it, it's hard to see them as anything but a threat. You may even want to cry out, wait, you threw seed here into the midst of this mess? What sort of wasteful scatteration? You know, the easiest thing to do at that point is to, to wander off like that crowd on the seashore. Just go on your way. The other option is to stick with Jesus. Ask your questions and wait. You know, that's the other thing about composting is it takes time, a long time. Sometimes you have to churn it up. Add some different things to the mix, new experiences when we're thinking metaphorically. But mainly, it just takes time. You know, I've heard plenty of preachers promise that if we just do it right, our life will overflow with blessings, happiness, wealth, health. And they themselves appear to have achieved it. They're like a perfectly manicured lawn, probably just as dependent on chemical supplements. And often they're just as harmful to the environments as around them. So that even as there may be a good deal of truth in what they have to say, there is a, a lie at the heart of it. it. It's not all resurrection without any crosses. It's not Easter Sunday that just jumps right over Good Friday and Holy Saturday. It's not the faith. That's, they're not presenting the faith of our Savior. They're presenting the faith of Monsanto. It's a faith that works in a laboratory less than it works in the world. You know, there are, you know, there are many times in my life that I would never want to relive. And I would never recommend to anybody else. There are rocks and birds and thorns. And even years later, I can still, I can still feel the sting of the thorns. I can still feel vulnerable to the birds, still feel the hardness of those rocks. Not as often or as, or, or, or as, um, as much as I used to, but I still do. I would never want to relive those times and I work hard to avoid putting myself in any situations like that again, but at the same time, I'd never want those experiences taken away from me. Because through worship and prayer and friends and therapy and the passage of time, all that stuff has begun to break down. It's become mulch. It's become compost. 
truth is that some of that wasteful scatteration has taken root there. Something of the kingdom has come alive in me right there. Those Good Fridays have made way for Easter Sunday. Now, I know I'm speaking rather abstractly, and I thought about giving specific examples, but I don't think I need to. My guess is that you get it. And not because you know my life, but because you know your own. That wasteful scatteration has not been wasted on you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.